Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Traditionally, the time to value is really long. It takes 6 to 12 months to deploy a solution and then to get it working and creating value. So I just said the, the solution has to be transformative. So we're not talking about taking a task that takes six months and do it in four months. We're talking about, can I bring six months down to 60 minutes? Can I bring it down to six minutes? Brendan, when I talk to financial institutions or other people and players in the market, they said, who do you think are your earliest adopters of your kind of solution? I said, to be honest, they are the small to mid-sized institutions because the leap from where they are today and to where to get to with our product is the highest for them. The biggest guys are the slower one because there are cultural and other issues that need to be overcome before they adopt something that's so transformational. Uh, but, th- you know, that's something we've typically seen in financial services. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. I've worked with or at least near credit scorecards for over 20 years and on three continents. And while any actual scorecard builder among our mutual acquaintances will point out that it's been a while since I've got my fingers dirty. There is one truth I thought I still knew, that a scorecard project takes time. Sure, not as much time as it did in the old, old days, but it's not so long since I left a major bank where you'd be looking at 6 to 12 months once you'd accounted for all the committee oversight, the data gathering, the data cleaning, the data processing, the model testing, the production coding, the production testing and only then to finally go live. Sanjay Upal, CEO and co-founder of FinBots AI, welcome to the show. We're mainly here to talk about disrupting the scorecard building paradigm. But first, let's start at the beginning of your journey. We sometimes hear the line that we need industry outsiders to really shake things up. In fact, I think I've probably said it myself on here, but you were a career banker before you founded FinBots, albeit one who was never shy of taking on challenges in new markets. You were in India, Indonesia, Singapore, Taiwan, the Philippines, the UAE, and Malaysia. So tell me, what was your career background and how did that shape you into the entrepreneur that you are today? Uh, thanks, uh, Brandon. In terms of my background, you know, by education, I'm an engineer and electrical and electronics engineering and master's in physics. And I think my love for technology started then. I got an opportunity to do everything from programming chips using microprogramming languages uh, and right up to working on mainframes. After which I decided to pursue my MBA, which is where I fell in love with the world of finance. And I must admit, uh, I've had an absolutely blessed banking career, uh, gave me enormous opportunities. Before I got into banking, I'd already made a few leaps of faith. But what it allowed me to really do is get deep into different parts of banking, being able to understand how different aspects of banks work, but also how do all these areas connect and interact with each other. Not just go and try and look at, 
just the symptoms, but really try and analyze them a lot more deeper and be able to solve problems in a lot more sustainable manner. And yes, I've had a bit of an adventurous spirit and uh, was never shy of saying no to going to a market. In fact, uh, in, in those days, uh, I said, oh, absolutely. Uh, I'll head down and undertake a project or two in Taiwan. And I didn't know how far it was from Singapore at that time. So I had to get into the map and figure it out. I finally moved in there and realized I couldn't buy a car because all road signs were in Mandarin and I didn't read Mandarin. So I was like, I'm not going to take these chances. Uh, so I spent my entire time, you know, using taxis and uh, it gave me an opportunity to learn Mandarin. But I think what it actually gave me was bring the perspective of technology, finance and understanding the business and the external market across different environments with banks at different stages of evolution, dealing with different challenges. And I think all that diversity uh, became enormously rich experience as I look back. And I think at one point in time, after I'd done this a few times, I saw an opportunity of how do I bring this to help wider set of institutions than just the one that I'm working. So the first thing that I did in 2012, I actually exited banking and set up my own consulting firm, Straitsbridge, out of Singapore. Uh, very quickly followed it up with an office in Dubai, and we set up our back end in India. At our peak, we were more than 170 people. And what it actually allowed me to do was build upon the banks that I had worked with, but gave me insights into a lot more other markets and financial institutions. And the idea of FinBots came from there. If you look under the hood in these financial institutions, a lot of their legacy processes are pretty much done the same way they were done 20, 30 years ago. And it seems surprising, but that is the truth. And... I thought that solving these problems in a lot wider, sustainable fashion needed a deep understanding, not just of technology and the capabilities we have, but also the domain. You know, how can I create a fintech that's going to create solutions to solve some of these legacy problems? Uh, and, and that brought about the birth of FinBots. You had had a career with leaps of faith involved in it. But after 20 years in banking, it can be difficult perhaps to to take that risk when when the alternative is a nice career laid out in front of you so you saw the gap but still you know it must have been a big decision to then from that point say okay but i'm going to go out on my own uh, was that entrepreneurship always something in you or what made you take that leap uh, Brendan, very good questions uh and and i keep getting asked that right through since i gave up my banking job 12 years ago now i think there were a few things one Yes, there's a bit of an entrepreneurial streak I had. Uh, in fact, I used to earn my own pocket money in my college days, and uh, that was through photography. And literally taking photographs and selling, and the reason uh, it was a lot easier than most people didn't own good cameras then. And that made my life a lot easier. And I think the kind of roles that I took on, the leap of faith for me at each stage is an entrepreneurial journey, because you're starting from scratch. You know, the classic statement of I'll build my uh, parachute on the way down. And, uh, you, you know, I think having had done that, even inside the corporate world, gave me that confidence. The switch, I, I would say, that was most notable for me was the trappings of a C-level role in financial institutions with all its profile and corner office to coming back to working off a single desk as a team of one, right? But I think I was willing to do that. Uh, it, it was something I realized that there is no other way to do this. You know, as I tell people, yeah. When you get onto the entrepreneurial journey, you are never prepared enough. And uh, I think having prepared myself mentally helped, but there were a lot of discoveries along the way. Uh, but what I really appreciated through the journey was the goodwill of a whole host of people I 
met during my career, uh, who became our references. So I ran my consulting firm for 10 years and we never advertised. We never sent out email flyers. We never cold called. Every client was a referral, a repeat business or somebody me or people in my team had in their network. Right. Uh, so I think uh, we were fortunate in that sense. And uh, it really was an amazing journey. And I was really fortunate to, you know, have a lot of really brilliant people join me along that. Yeah, you're echoing some of the things that Janesh Forrest spoke to me about after 14 years in Goldman Sachs, he started his business and he said he suddenly realized in Goldman, if I needed a question answered about the law, there was a team of lawyers. If I had a question about marketing, there was a team of marketers. And suddenly I was on my own sort of uh, working it all out. But I think what's interesting in your uh, entrepreneurial journey with Finbots is how it's evolved and grown through that whole journey from bootstrap to, to Series A. So before we start talking about the product itself and what you're doing, you know, what's that journey been like? How have you seen Finbots grow? When I started, I actually wrote down three key principles of what we're going to do in our solutions for financial institutions. The first one was the solution has to be transformative. So we're not talking about taking a task that takes six months and do it in four months. We're talking about, can I bring six months down to 60 minutes? Can I bring it down to six minutes and do it even better? The second thing was around the democratization. When you look at high complexity areas in financial services, the target market for those B2B solutions is typically top 5 to 10% of financial institutions globally. Uh, the rest of the organizations either can't afford those solutions or even if they can, can, do not have access to the skills that are needed to drive the solution. So I needed products that are going to be democratized in terms of affordability, the largest global banks down to the smallest micro lender, but equally have a design that would allow both of them to use it effectively. And, you know, that came to me at a coffee I was having with a friend of mine. And we're having a coffee and I was looking at something on some FX rates because I had to do, send some money. And I'm looking at the app and the guy who's serving his coffee says, oh, I use the same app. And I just put the phone down and I talked to this mate of mine. He's also a banker. And I said, you know, think about this. We spent a lifetime of our careers where if I had to remit money in foreign exchange to another country, I had to go to the branch, queue up, fill up this complex form, go to the entire process and hope the money will reach the other end in three, four days. Today, whether it's me or this guy who just served us coffee, we are able to remit this money literally on the fly within five minutes. That's democratization. Why can't other solutions be like this? Why can't I create a B2B solution that even the smallest fintech lender who's just started or a micro lender is able to use? And the third thing for me on a B2B solutions was traditionally the time to value is really long. It takes six to 12 months to deploy a solution and then to get it working and creating value. So I just said, it's 12 months, we bring it to 12 weeks. And, you know, we're we really fortunate we are able to achieve that today. So time to value for our clients is 12 weeks. The solution goes in there. They're able to create the models and roll them out. So the idea essentially was transformational product, democratize access. And the third thing is rapid time to value. That's where the journey started. And we actually developed the first version of our product and rolled it out in February 2020. And it was enormously successful. I think the quality of scorecards our product was developing, the impact it had on our client institution was amazing. So we were, okay, we're ready to take this to a bigger scale now. And March, everything shut down. 
right? So this is 2020, COVID struck. We were sitting with a proven successful solution. We were ready to take to a wider market and suddenly we couldn't do that anymore. We then spent nearly the next, I would say, 18, 20 months on regrouping ourselves as an organization. But the second thing I did was I looked at the entire product roadmap I had for the next three years and said, we're going to do it as soon as possible. We didn't have an opportunity to go and sell to customers. The customers weren't in the office themselves. And we just used that entire time to hunker down and speed up our development, speed up a lot of our experimentation. And in a way, it proved to be a good time because we didn't have distractions. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I also decided to bootstrap it. So while the funding market was doing pretty well, the thought that I had is I have set aside money that I want to invest in this venture. And I want to take to the market once I have proven our idea. So the first time we reached out into the market was December last year. So literally a year ago, when we started speaking with investors, we had a product that was ready, customers, and a validation from external partners. So PwC was already pitching our product to their clients and had evaluated and were very satisfied. We had been selected to global accelerators uh, amongst literally a handful of fintechs. And with that behind is when we reached out into the investor world. There was some fantastic feedback. So obviously not everybody had a fantastic feedback. Some of said, said, well, this is not a sector we look at and oh, this is not what we do. But I think the guys who were interested was really good. And uh, we were really fortunate because uh, Axel moved very quickly. And literally three weeks later, we had a firm offer for them to take up the entire round. Yeah, and I think not just investor confidence. I've seen you awarded among the top 10 fintechs in Singapore by the MAS there. So getting good response, and I think that clear sort of three-prong approach is, is probably behind that. To really be able to reference some guiding styles that are that clear in your mind definitely makes it easy, I think, for the team to work in the same direction. And yeah, I think we'll get into some of that stuff around turnaround times and things which people can really appreciate. But one I hadn't thought of was that democratization. You know, I've worked in, in credit risk for, for 20 years, and it has been either you're a big bank buying from the same global name that everybody in the US and the UK and uh, sort of the big developed markets is. There's sort of a handful of names we could probably list off the top of our heads now that sell those solutions, or you're buying from somebody down the road who's running a sort of a two-person consulting firm out of their garage who knows how to build scorecards. And there was very little in between and it had not struck me as all that unusual. But you're right, there's no reason there should be that massive gap, that empty part of the market. 
as you said there, yeah, a big focus also on, on turnaround time. And yeah, I was just talking to, to Frank Gerhard from McKinsey. And yeah, he was saying, yeah, if it takes you six months, and sometimes it's even longer than that, but if, yeah, if it's taking you six months to get a, a decision model into the system, it's just not going to work in this current environment. We need faster turnaround times. Obviously, we've all seen the impact uh, of COVID and we've gone into now uh, inflationary pressures. It's not a world anymore that we can rely on, you know, let's spend a year building a framework and it's going to reference two years of stable data to predict the next two years of stable outcomes. So really underlying that need for for turnaround time that you've highlighted as a key part of the FinBot's uh, philosophy. But within that, there's obviously a sort of a conservative alarm bell saying like, well, two parts, I guess, is one, how have you been able to leverage sort of modern technology to, to do that? And two, in terms of the modeling and, and the, the performance, the controls, all those sort of checks that a banker that you're trying to sell to might want to look into, how do you get that same level of statistical rigor, that same level of control, but in, in much faster times than uh, we were used to just a few years ago? Very, very valid points. And, uh, you know, that was literally, uh, Brandon, at the heart of the product design itself. At every stage of my product, one of the thoughts I always do is flip my hands and say, hang on, would I buy this? Am I happy with this? So you have to think about this is three, four years ago when we were doing the core design and we are deepening the product capability we started on. And I was already building into it the principles of fairness, explainability, and transparency. Because putting my banking hat on, I, I don't want something that's a black box, right? So that was at the core of our design. If you have to remember what we talk machine learning, AI today, is not something that's come around today, right? What has changed today is our ability to store enormous amount of data economically. Number two is the processing speeds we have today. You know, you go into a search bar before you type your third word, it's already telling you what it should be. So think about it. And there are millions of people doing it at the same time, any second. And the third thing is the speed of transmission of information. I think those three combinations literally are the most fertile ground to bring AI to life. And that's what we've essentially done. But being mindful that when you're doing things at that speed, that there are things that could happen which go out of your control. And, you know, I don't know whether it's a fair comparison, but if you look at, uh, you know, nuclear energy, a nuclear energy harnessed right is the most amazing thing, most efficient in terms of producing power, energy, etc., but when you lose control, you can have a Chernobyl. And I think when we've handled AI, we've literally handled it like that in our product development and design, minimizing what I call the trust me, it's going to work well factor. Because I think anybody who's gone through a few crises in financial institutions will realize that what always let you down was when somebody said, trust me. But now we've also got leadership that understands us. So now we've got people like yourselves, people in senior roles who've built their careers up as analysts or done lots of on the ground sort of hands dirty work in the space of data in general and even in some of these technologies. Sanjay, I guess one thing I want to get my head around and maybe some of the people listening would be wondering as well is where do you get the data that feeds these models or what's the the data process for the FinBot solution? The data side remains very core. It's at the heart of uh, what feeds into developing your models. One of the things we've been mindful about is the perennial challenge of lack of data. There is an enormous amount of data organizations already process. 
data that's readily accessible and may, may or may not be a bureau data. So we've made our product uh, data agnostic. And what it means is that you're able to bring in various kinds of data, numerical, categorical data from different kinds of sources and be able to effectively use it in the model development. So we've got a uh, B2B lending client who's got no access to uh, or they are not even credible uh, annual financial accounts of the entities they're lending to. They don't have access to uh, bank records. And he said even that is not really relevant because a lot of transactions are happening in cash. What they do have is credible data on the entire supply chain or the purchase behavior of each of these entities going back to, I think, about a year or plus. And that is a verified data. For me, honestly speaking, that data is more reflective of the underlying business activity of the institution you're looking to lend to than a point-in-time annual accounts, which will get produced once a year or once a quarter, or bank statement, which might be at a summary level. And using that data, they're able to produce their scorecards amazingly well. But equally, there's always a bit of caution, which is uh, just don't throw all data because there's this term of big data. I think you're still looking at good data. You know, you're looking at relevant data. So I don't think AI has reached that point where no matter what you throw in, you'll get a magical outcome in there. The key thing still remains that there is a human judgment involved, but the system does an amazing whole host of things, but don't take your eye off that. You know, if you look at AI, we've seen some spectacular failures, right? Even from some of the biggest names globally. And that's because I think the care not taken in terms of how you're using the data or what you're bringing in to train your models. And, uh, you know, when I talked about fairness in the models, that's a key piece. Yeah, because I think that's actually one of the unmet promises of, of AI and machine learning in, in many situations that we were promised big data, you know, just throw everything at the machine and it will give you an answer. And very few financial institutions had that sort of data or when they had it knew what to do with it or when they knew what to do with it could turn it into a scorecard but in one way maybe it's because of your consulting background as well but you've almost built in that consulting ability of how to use the data so it it closes that loop which i think is exciting because it's in many ways doing two or three steps at once Uh, yeah it's exciting to see real ai real machine learning at scale one of the things, though, when you talk about your sort of transformation of the industry, as you said, you didn't just want to go from sort of 12 months to nine months. You did like 12 months to 12 weeks or six months to six minutes. It's not just about efficiencies. It's not just, OK, we're going to save my client a few thousand dollars in terms of how they roll out credit scorecards, or even I'm going to get them a few extra genie points in a model, and that's going to save them some money or make them some money in their lending. This is like a, it's a reimagining of their businesses, too. It's a proper transformation. What have you seen it do for lenders and how are you seeing your customers react and respond to this new ability to really rapidly uh, implement models? Today, we have a client in Nigeria who's using it very successfully. It's an IFC-backed fintech lender there. And it's just been amazing in terms of what it's done to their business. Enormously successful. Uh, as we speak, we are about to go live uh, with the first uh, neobank in Mongolia. So apart from the traditional markets that you and I know and, you know, you would expect the product to go live, what we're doing is also going to a lot more other markets to prove that this capability can be used there and can empower our clients there. So we continue on that. Oh, by the way, we just signed uh, earlier today our first client in Australia. 
And uh, the idea essentially is the product is equally suitable for a developed market. If somebody asked me recently, he says, what's the biggest challenge in your taking your product to market, right? With some of the clients you're speaking with. And my answer is disbelievability. Because I've had senior credit and risk guys tell me, look, this is how we've done credit models my entire career. I started 30 years ago. This is how we do it. This is how we do it today. We actually set up live demo environments, which means we've told you about the product, now see it. Because I think there are design aspects in our product that are very unique. And we were, the term you used is right, which is reimagined. We have reimagined the entire process. But when I tell people about our product, they're trying to fit what I'm telling them in the legacy framework. So we usually very quickly cut to the product so they get to see what it is. And it pretty much every time, including literally the reason I was late for this call, was at least to an aha moment. So we had one of the largest global banks who started skeptically and we closed by saying, okay, guys, we're running out of time, but we need 30 minutes more. Can we continue tomorrow? Uh, and, and this is the global heads and stuff like that. So uh, I think seeing the product really makes a difference. So last year, we started ensuring we do that with anybody we are pitching the product to. What we have now done is, Brendan, this year we set up, I think, about 15 sandbox environments. We can take organizations through end-to-end two-week POCs where they bring their own data, develop their own models, and they get access to the platforms to test it out and literally test drive it. Literally, we can start a POC tomorrow if somebody signs up today and says, I want a POC. Now they're seeing it with their own information data, with their own hands. They're using it, doing whatever needs to be done. You know, uh, that's helped us move on. The second thing, obviously, and you touched upon it earlier, the, the market environment is seeing its first real credit I would say, challenge emerging across the world for the first time in nearly 15 years. Uh, So there is also a demand side where people are saying, hang on, it sounds good to be true, but let me have a look at it. And, uh, you know, that's giving us a lot more traction now. Yeah, and I think it is. Yeah, if you talk about 15 years since the last crisis and the last time that maybe boards at the the banks have really been interested in the space. And it's also probably since when last we saw big revolutionary changes in terms of, you know, the scorecard technology. I mean, of course, there's been developments and, and, and improvements in modeling, but you're right. A lot of the more innovative use of different techniques and technologies was on the fringes, maybe used in some marketing capacities, but wasn't really pushed because the models were working, the models were signed off, <laughs> and nobody really wanted to uh, shake the, the boat when it came to that, and there wasn't an obvious need to. So in many cases, it was easier if you were a career risk person to tweak them to make them a few percent better every year, but um, maybe not a, a high priority where suddenly, yeah, as you said, you, you used that period of COVID to, to buckle down and, and work uh, undistracted. As we emerged from that, you know, into the the promise of a roaring twenties that never <laughs> never emerged, uh, suddenly, yeah, you were there with the the right solution, and I think it's, uh, yeah, clearly, as you said, from from throughout your career, you've taken on new challenges. You've you've obviously got a big focus on on growing and and trying new things. Before I let you go, I'd be quite interested in in kind of where you where you're looking next, where your energy is going. Brendan, I think we're kind of working in a few parallel streams. We have a product roadmap and a journey that kind of continues on our development side. So there's an organization, part of the organizations that's focused on developing newer capabilities and versions within our solutions. We are adding more functionalities and that's going to continue over the next couple of years. We have a roadmap for that. 
The second one, as you rightly said, is taking our product to the market and ensuring every client is successful and, uh, you know, it's meeting their objectives. And, you know, that part of the day-to-day running continues. At the core of it, you know, and I always present the numbers, which I, you know, to our clients, which is the scale of financial exclusion we have globally, whether it's lending to small businesses or consumers. It is amazing that even after all these years of financial services, and this came out in our IFC report last year, the scale of financial exclusion is multiples the size of the actual market who has access to credit today, especially in developing markets. So one of the things we look and work with our clients is what are they being able to enable in driving financial inclusion, if we, which could be just having more fair scorecards, which means devoid of uh, traditional biases, but number two, a lot more accurate credit assessment, which allows them to confidently lend to the excluded borrowers. And finally, the third thing is, I think as this progresses, we should expect loss rates to improve, which means that the good borrowers who have never defaulted are not being charged a premium that will make up for the bad borrowers. Because it's not, well, we've got a great product, we sell it to somebody and we move on. Uh, but you know, we recognize there's an opportunity that they have and there are people and businesses that should benefit from this. So we actually work with our clients to look at that aspect too. So I think that part of the journey will continue even as we are developing and harnessing more capabilities and building them into our product. Yeah, I think that's one of the really big impacts is that a lot of the inefficiencies in the credit process at the moment are paid for by the borrowers who who end up getting the loan. So if it's hard for somebody to measure risk accurately, the prices are higher than they need to be because people still need to borrow money. So some people are excluded, other people are included, but they pay a lot more. Getting rid of those inefficiencies, sure, it makes banks more profitable and banks more stable, which is good for the investors and the cost of capital and such. But it's uh, the consumers that benefit a lot because more people get access to credit and those that get access are cheaper. And I love the, the, the global reach you've got. I'm jealous of, of some of the markets. Uh, on the show, I try and get guests from all over the world. And uh, I think I've had 40 countries represented and yet to get somebody on from Australia. So I'll have to, <laughs> have to take some tips from you. Um, but I think that also means yeah, you're talking to people, talking to clients or able to talk to clients from yeah, as far afield as Mongolia to, to Australia. I think people listening today, that means no matter what market they're in, uh, if they're interested in what they've heard today on the FinBot story, maybe they want to talk to you to set up one of those immediate uh, proofs of concept. Uh, where, where could they go? I think the easiest way would be, uh, because people are sitting across time horizons, is just go to our website and drop in uh, details through the contact us page and we respond within 24 hours. So it's not something that goes in there and you're hoping you'll get a response. You will get one. Uh, the second piece is obviously following us on our LinkedIn page, and that's where we are posting some of our progress very often about and some of our thought processes around, you know, what we're seeing in the market, uh, you know, how some of the success stories have proven for our clients, and especially in the current environment. So, yeah, LinkedIn is a great place for to follow us too. Great. Yeah, I will put those links in the in the show notes as well. I've been following the page and as you said some really nice mix of content that comes through in terms of things like the announcements of the mbank deal but also stuff to read and to keep a track of what's happening in that space so certainly recommend people click on there and and follow you guys sanjay thank you so much for your time today i mean it's been paradigm busting for me and and really uh, interesting to challenge some of those yeah, assumptions that build up over a long career in a space and to really think yeah why why were we putting up with that 
and thank you all for listening. Please do look for and follow the show on your favorite podcast platform and share the updates widely on LinkedIn, where lending nerds are found in our largest concentration. Plus, send me a connection request while you're there. This show is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, in Brighton, England. Show music is by I Am Wake, and you can find show notes and written transcripts at www.howtolendmoneytostrangers.show or just www.htlmts.show, and I'll see you again next Thursday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.